please take a seat. Occasionally we hear news that we, we don't know what to do with. We hear of an occurrence that we simply didn't believe was possible. In fact, we'd never really considered whether it was possible or not because the categories for this kind of event simply don't exist in our mind. I'm not thinking of something like Liverpool winning the Premier League. Um, if you're under 30, that category doesn't probably exist in your mind. Some of us are old enough to remember when that happened quite often, uh, Liverpool winning things. I'm thinking of occurrences that are even more mind-blowing than that. I can still remember coming home on a Tuesday afternoon in September of 2001. I'd just been at a a funeral uh, in the church where I was working as an assistant minister at the time. And I heard some strange-sounding stories about aeroplanes crashing into Twin Towers in New York. And I flicked on the TV and I watched as the pictures uh, were beamed in. It was like watching a far-fetched action movie. I don't watch movies where where planes fly into buildings. It's not really my scene. So I was watching this and I, I remember flicking the channels to see if there was an interfering signal coming in to BBC because it didn't look real. My mind just wasn't ready to deal with this kind of stuff. And maybe you can think of moments in your life where where you heard something and it just jumbled your mind because you, you didn't know how to make sense of it. I'm imagining that that's how the two Marys felt that first Easter Sunday morning. They'd come, they they knew what they were doing. Their their minds were clear. They were on death business. They had their spices with them. They were ready to anoint the body of their friend Jesus, whom they'd saw dying. Their visit to the tomb that day was every bit as commonplace, I think, as somebody visiting a graveside to, to put flowers there on the grave of a loved one. And that's when they get this news. He's not here. He's risen. The man you saw die just a couple of days ago isn't dead anymore. That dead man's up and he's walking. And it's at this point, I just can't imagine that the women have any categories to make sense of what they're hearing. How would you make sense of that wild and crazy idea. These women knew every bit as well as you do or I do what happens to people when they die. They stay dead. That's what happens to dead people. I think we sometimes play a trick in our minds. We say that we live in the the scientific era where we understand medical science. We know that people who are dead, stay dead. But they didn't.
They'd seen enough of the people in their village close to them die to know that dead people stay dead. So what's going on here? Had he not really died? Had there been a mistake about that? Or had he not really lived or or come back to life? Is there a mistake about that? He can't surely have done both. He can't have died on Friday and be alive on Sunday, surely. Let's quickly check those two claims. Had Jesus really died, can we be sure? Well, the contention of the Bible and of all Christians for the last two millennia is that Jesus Christ did die, that he was buried, and that he was as dead as anybody in the graveyard over there in Dundonald or who has been cremated up at Roselawn. Jesus was dead. And although we don't read much about it in Matthew's account, the other gospels give us evidence surrounding the death of Jesus. So in Mark chapter 15, you get a bit of the background to the conversation which Matthew records in in chapter 27, verse 58. When Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body, Mark tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him, if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Jesus was dead, and Pilate has been told that he's dead. And there's even an element of surprise. He's dead sooner than we expected. Pilate needs an autopsy from the centurion who's overseeing that crucifixion. Now, the Romans had had many talents, But when it came to killing people, they were experts. They knew, for example, that if you wanted to speed up a death by crucifixion, what you do is you break a man's legs so that he can't anymore push himself up to prevent himself from suffocating. They didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. These Roman executors knew as well that our blood coagulates when we die. That is, the, the red stuff separates from the white stuff. And it creates a clear, watery kind of a fluid. And that's why they stuck a spear up into Jesus' side. And there was a flow of blood and what they call water. Again, it shows that he was dead. And we read in Matthew 27, 59, what Joseph did with the body. He took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. So the Roman soldiers and Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea all agree. There were in absolutely no doubt about this. This man's dead. You leave Jesus dead in Matthew's gospel at the end of chapter 27. But see that gap between 27 and 28? It's huge. There's a whole world in there and that half inch of white paper 
in your Bible. So much has changed between Friday and Sunday. Chapter 28, if chapter 27 tells us about the moment when death triumphs over life, then chapter 28 tells us of the death of death and the triumph of life over death. You can almost feel it as you read the story. In chapter 28, we just have a sense that everything's changed. Sunday feels really, really different than Friday did. On Friday, the the sky was dark. The angels in heaven are silent. And soldiers are mocking Jesus. On Sunday, it's the soldiers who who are silent. They're terrified. It's the angel who's speaking. And it's all taking place in the first light of dawn. These two Marys knew straight away when they encountered this scene that something was up. What they didn't know yet was that someone was up. And so the angels tell them, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. So the angels offer the women evidence that the same Jesus who was dead is now alive. Come and look at the tomb. They said, it's empty. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is always and remains a very strong piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The early opponents of Christianity never, never challenged the empty tomb. No Pharisee or Roman soldier ever led a contingent to that burial site and said there, the angel was wrong. Look, the body's still here. It was all a rumor. They would have, if they could have, make no, make no mistake about it, verses 11 to 15 indicate just how strong the desire was for a cover-up to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Within about a week, within weeks of Jesus' death, his disciples were standing all around Jerusalem, very close by to the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And they were preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead And what quicker way would there have been for the opponents of Jesus to knock all that in the head than to simply produce a cold, lifeless body? If they could only display that corpse, Christianity's dead. But they couldn't because they had no corpse. All of this helps to explain the the meteoric rise of the early Christian church. The apostles spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. They pointed to an empty tomb and there was no evidence to deny their claims. As one writer puts it, the silence of the Jews is as eloquent as the speech of the Christians. There's an empty tomb, but there's another powerful piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's not developed in our passage this morning. His disciples. You've got to notice 
what happened in the life of Jesus' disciples. Before Sunday, it's all about fear. They run. As soon as the pressure's on, Jesus is arrested in the garden and they run. Peter, Jesus' bravest disciple, tries to go with them but ends up denying him. The disciples on the, the road to Emmaus in another resurrection passage, they're talking about how he's died. John tells us in his gospel that the disciples spent the time after Jesus' crucifixion with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. That's who Jesus' disciples were. Fast forward seven weeks. Peter is standing on the streets of Jerusalem and he's preaching. He's saying that the Jesus you killed, he's risen, he's alive. The disciples who ran from these enemies are now taking them on. If you whip these guys, and they, they did whip them, they, they end up singing and worshiping. If you lock them up, they start a, a prison fellowship group. These guys are every bit as brave after the resurrection of Jesus as they were chicken before it. Something's happened. These guys are changed. There's only one explanation for the huge transformation in the life of these disciples. A resurrected Jesus who had given them his spirit and his power. Folks, their, their courage was born at that Easter morning, at that empty tomb. They didn't dream up the resurrection. They didn't even have the categories, I don't think, to dream that dream. The resurrection instead fired them up and gave them new categories that changed everything for them. Do you have any doubts that Jesus rose from the dead? I, I think you need to look at his followers and the transformation that occurred in them. So there's an empty tomb. There's the lives of the early followers. All this evidence points to an astonishing truth that that category that we don't have in our minds does exist. That a dead man has risen and his name is Jesus. In the first moments, I, I can only imagine that the women were were struggling to come to terms with this reality that Jesus, who was dead, was now alive. That was a, I was going to say, a lot to come to terms with. I don't know how you come to terms with that. But the coming to terms with the reality of Jesus' resurrection was only the beginning. They now had to work out how to live in the light of that reality. What difference is Jesus' resurrection going to make? Surely this would change everything for them. Surely this would change everything for anybody who claimed to follow Jesus after them in the future. How were their lives going to change? 
Well, we're not told everything, at least not right away. We're not told all the ways in which the resurrection is going to change the lives of Jesus' followers. But we are given in this passage a starting point. The women were given two commands. The angel gave them two commands, and Jesus gave them the same two commands. I wonder what they were. Don't be afraid. Go to Galilee. Go to Galilee. Go back home and tell Jesus' other friends to do the same. In a few weeks' time, there's going to be another go command. It'll be about going and reaching the entire world with the good news about me. But the first place I'm sending you is home. Go back to the place where it all began. Go back to your everyday, to your families and friends, your work and your colleagues, your leisure and your hobbies. Go back there and notice how they're the same, but actually not really the same anymore. Notice how what's happened here these last few days has transformed everything. Notice slowly the outworkings of this transformation as you live day after day in the power of my spirit. Allow me to transform you at home where you started out. Allow me to transform your oldest memories and your deepest identity. I want to meet with you at home in Galilee. Jesus' followers were to go home. But the other thing that the angel and Jesus both insist is that the women and the other followers were not to be afraid. You've probably heard me say this before. Do not be afraid is one of the most common things that God says or the messenger of God says when they approach frail human beings. It's a common command in the Bible. But I wonder if it's ever carried more significance than here. Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Folks, this Easter, do not be afraid, confronts us with a, a glorious reality. What is there to be afraid of? If evil men can do their worst, if they can have what appears like full and final victory, 
And God can reverse it just like that. If he can defeat all the enemies that come before, but then the final enemy too of death, if he can make dead people live, what's to be afraid of? What's the worst that could happen after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Why be afraid when the old world has cracked open and we've been there to see the birth of the new? Do not be afraid. Maybe those commands that the women heard early that Easter morning are the commands Jesus has for us today. Go home. Start to live more deeply in the light of my resurrection. Trust me to keep working the transformation. Allow me to use you to Share the good news about me with the world. And don't be afraid. I've defeated death. I'm not going anywhere. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Just now I'm going to invite the choir to come and to sing for us this joyful Easter tide. They're going to sing that piece, and while they do that, the stewards will lift this morning's offering. Pardon? I'm okay. Um, I'm so during the singing of this song, the, the offering will be uh, lifted. Um, and then after that, we'll invite you to stay in your seats and hear the choir sing a, another song, Death Could Not Hold Him. Uh, I want you to pay attention to that one. It'll be a new one to most of you. And the, the words will be on the screen here. We're going to use it in a few moments as our closing hymn, Death Could Not Hold Him. So first of all, this joyful Easter tide and then followed by death could not hold him. Mm-hmm.